Welcome to the Top Order Podcast. It's Cricketing Hall of Fame time again. We are boarded into tier B or... Three. The, the third tier. The, into the, the third tier yeah. of the Cricketing Hall of Fame. We're going to count down number 40 to 36. We've got four nationalities represented in today's podcast. I bet we can't squeeze a Kiwi um, in though. All coming up on the Top Order Podcast. Stay tuned. So, Border, we are going to count down 40 through 36 today into the top 40 charts. Um, tell us a little bit about this tier system. So we're into, yeah, we're into the, the not the godlike tier, but the sort of the next tier of uh, of test cricketers, aren't we? Yeah, into, I can't remember what I called it. I think it was the leadership group. There's the, the Pantheon, the top four kind of greatest players of all time. Then there's the first 11, which is the next 11 players after that, funnily enough. Uh, although I might make room for 12. We'll just see. We might have a 12th. Uh, and then the third tier is kind of the, the the leadership group, the sort of top 40 cricketers of all time. For complex le- legal and uh, copyright reasons, it can't be referred to as a pyramid, but let's call it a multi-tiered cricketing awards and recognition structure um, <laughs> in in the, the same way that a Ponzi scheme is not a Ponzi scheme, but a multi-tiered marketing opportunity. Awesome. There's an acronym in there somewhere. Yeah, please do comment in the Facebook uh, chat. Um, but let's kick off. We'll stick six minutes on the clock. We are going to go, not surprisingly, to your home nation again, Michael. Um, so we've got an Australian coming in at number 40. And an Australian who loved cricket possibly more than anyone else in the history of Test Cricket for Australia. I'm talking of the great all-rounder Keith Miller. Played 55 tests for his country, scored 2,958 runs at a healthy batting average of 36.97 with seven hundreds in amongst that and a higher score of 147. Also took 170 wickets at a Miger, no, Miger? No. Measly. Me- measly or meagre average. Miger is my new word. It's like bing pot. It's jackpot and bingo at the same time. Yeah, yep, exactly. At an average of 22.97 and a strike rate of 61. Best bowling in a test match at the age of 36, actually, 1956 Tour of England. Took 10 for 152. Is only 10 for. Uh, but had some tremendous series for Australia. That 1955 Tour, I think he got 439 runs at 70. Uh, 1946 in England, averaged 76 with the bat, and then three tours averaging under sort of under 22 with the ball. He only, I think, he only had a couple of series, maybe three in his career, where he averaged over 25 with the ball. So, um, uh, fa- many, many, many famous stories. I think my favourite stat of all in researching Keith Miller is his Wikipedia page has 568 references and annotations, <laughs> which is quite a lot, uh, I think. So that's my favourite Keith Miller stat for you. Yeah, well, look, I mean, you guys, you mentioned just then, uh, you called said that he, he loves cricket more than any other Australian. I would say he loves loves uh, maybe what cricket brought him off the field. Uh, it seemed like he, yeah, I, I would love to talk about that probably for a lot longer than six minutes. Yeah, he liked a beverage. And again, reference Wikipedia here, there's several references to... Yeah, him, his thirst getting him into a little bit of trouble on occasion. Yeah, f- famously uh, unenthused with both authority and enthused with having a beer and, and uh, carousing with his mates, I think, Keith Miller. Um, and I, I want to stay away from apocryphal tales, but there are many, many 
um, that have been told about Keith Miller, lots of them in his Wikipedia article. So check that out. Um, famously didn't get along with Bradman, and that cost him um, probably the captaincy he of the Australian side. He wouldn't be the first side. person not to get on with Bradman, though, would he? Absolutely. But he's he was famously kind of unenthused with authority, both as an individual and as a member of the Air Force, where, of course, he spent uh, the latter half of World War II, at least, as a, as a, a fighter-bomber pilot. So he flew uh, Mosquitoes, which is kind of a... a twin-engine fighter bomber towards the end of World War II and famously afterwards when asked about pressure playing international cricket, he gave us probably the best quote ever in terms of test cricket, which is, um, pressure is a Schmidt up your ass, <laughs> playing cricket is not. Um, so that kind of just summed up the guy perfectly, I think. He, uh, he, was, he sort of very famously described himself as lucky to be alive, even in, in later years when he was suffering poor health, said, look, I've, I've had a, a very charmed kind of life, um, and was very, very lucky. Played 50 VFL games for Victoria, so a dual sportsman as well. Kicked a bunch of goals during that uh, pre-war period as well. So the biggest surprise for me, actually, when I was doing the, the eye test was actually... Sorry, I'm just going to bring it back to cricket. But okay, the, yeah, yeah, go, go for it. <laughs> the most surprising thing was his, his technique looked really good for somebody in, in, in that era, and he averaged, what, 36 with the bat? For someone who averaged you know under 23 with the ball, how did he compare to the other... Uh, all-rounders. So of those great all-rounders of all time, we're talking about Sobers, Callis, and then the big four uh, of the of the 1980s, and both of them and Imran Khan and, and Kapil Dev and Sir Richard Hadley. His batting average amongst those guys is third behind Imran Khan's got a, a, an average of 37, I think, and obviously Sobers is well into the 50s, 57.78. So of those great batting all-rounders, all he's kind of right up there in terms of his, his batting average. And probably I think there's been some... In, over the course of history, been some accusations levelled at or criticism levelled at Keith Miller that he underperformed with the bat a little bit as 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 talented as he is. I mean, he averaged 48.9 in first-class cricket with the bat. So there's a big gap there between his first-class average and his test average as far as batting is concerned. And that's not something – actually going through this process and, and looking at those stats – you actually often find with these great players that, yeah, their first-class averages usually measure up very closely to their test average. Sometimes even their, their test average is better. Just slightly higher. Um, and, and, and it's really interesting because Keith Miller was, was a big fan of the contest. And if it wasn't a competitive contest, he was very, very disinterested. And perhaps that some, goes some way to explaining maybe why he has that unfulfilled potential, perhaps. Because, I mean, famously... Uh, um, in a, a game, I think it was against Essex, a tour game uh, after the war. He came in at Australia with two for 360. Bradman wanted to put on a bunch of runs. I think they made 700 in a day in that game. And he very famously just let the first ball go and hit his off stump because to him, the game was not competitive and therefore he was completely disinterested in, in, that, um, in that particular game. But when the heat was on, he was, um, he was an absolute superstar for Australia. And, and part of that famous fastball opening bowling pairing of uh, Miller and Lindwell after the war uh, in particular. Uh, Baldy, uh, uh, we've touched upon it a little bit with the with the statistics. Um, uh, one thing I picked up on was they kind of do this retro of the ICC rankings. So um, he got into the top, I think, top 10 for batting at the highest point in his career and 
um, top 20 for bowling. Or I might have got that the wrong way around. But mm. how do we kind of, I guess, compare him? You mentioned that big four all-rounders that we, I know will come on to some of them. Yeah. Um, and one of them very shortly. But yeah, how how did how does he compare in the Australian pantheon? You've not been famous really for, for all-rounders, Australia, with the, the way your sides have been structured? Uh, no, and he is quite clearly the best all-rounder Australia has ever had. It, whatever way you want to assess all-rounders, whether it's sort of fivers and hundreds or whether it's difference between batting average and bowling average, Keith Miller stands out as the greatest all-rounder Australia has ever produced. And it's probably not even close, particularly around fast bowling all-rounders. We've got some pretty good spin bowling all-rounders and Benno and, and Co. But he's been by far the best the best bowling all-rounder we've ever produced, that's for sure, and certainly the best fast bowling all-rounder as well. Got the timer going off in the background. It's very um, apt as we wrap up on Keith Miller. It's very loud now. Um, we're going to come on to another all-rounder now. Um, Ian Terence Botham, also known as Baron Botham, um, is in the list at number 39. Baldy, uh, over to you. I guess there's, you know there's that obvious Ashes link there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about 1981, aren't we, in this in this next six minutes. But let's have a look at his stats before we get on to some of the most memorable moments I think that any Test cricketer has given us over the last 40 or 50 years. Ian Botham, 102 Tests for England, 5,200 runs at 33 and a half, uh, 14 Test hundreds in that in that 100 Test career, as well as 383 wickets. And when he uh, went past, I think Dennis Lilly it was, went past uh, Dennis Lilly and, and held the world record for a long time and then sort of Richard Hadley overtook him um, and went on to hold it for a while himself. He averaged 28.4 with the ball, Botham, at a strike rate of 56, 10, uh, sorry, four tenfers and 27 fivefers in his test career. So took a five for once every four tests or if you're, if you're playing an Ashes series, on average, he took one and a bit Fivers every series he played against Australia. So some of those, like that, that that rate of fivers is top twenty all time. If you think about 20, 27 fivers in a hundred tests, and some of his peak moments are just unbelievable. Averaging over fifty with the bat and under under fifteen with the ball in some tours. It's it's like that span eighty one, eighty two for Ian Botham. He was the best cricketer in the world probably with bat and ball just about um, at the same time. So just a tremendous all-rounder. Let's go to you, Adam, because he's from England. He's probably one of the the key players growing up in your cricket, watching um, as a child and then as a teen. What's your favourite memory of, of Ian Botham, of all of the moments that he's given us? Yeah, look, I, I, it's difficult to distill it into a moment that doesn't talk about the 1981 Ashes. And um, I'll just caveat, I was born in 1979 so I didn't even watch the 1981 Ashes it, it was the fact that it was on replay every summer in England in every single rain break ad infinitum after that and um, my earliest memory he actually moved from Somerset which was his home county and I, look I think that's one of the key things that I, I think about when I think of both them knowing his story um he wasn't even on the staff at Somerset. He had to go to essentially what was then the 19th first-class county, which was the MCC ground staff, to even get a, an opportunity to potentially play professional cricket. One of his Somerset coaches when he was 17, 18 said he'd be a good or average county player was his summation of his abilities. He went off to the MCC, and came back to Somerset, played in the John Player, which was the one-day stuff, and did really, really well. But he moved to Worcestershire, which was my county of choice when I was a kid growing up in 1980. So certainly remember him down at um, at New Road. And then I think 
it's important as well for for me to look at the context of that 81 performance. Um, he was captain in 80-81 leading into that series. Um, 12 test matches, um, eight losses, four draws was his captaincy record. Got a pair in the first Ashes test in 1981. Very nearly didn't play the second game. Mike Brearley, I think, used a bit of kidology and psychology to get him on the park for that um, that second test match. And then, as they say, the rest is history. Six for 95 at Headingley, 149 at eight. A spell of five for one at Edgebaston and then 118 in Old Trafford in what will always go down as Botham's, uh, Botham's Ashes. Yeah, just picking up on a lot of those moments you, you talked about there. His numbers are great. You know, it's got him to where he is in this Hall of Fame as per Baldy's algorithm. But do they matter as much as, you know, he was the figure that the man, the myth, the legend that he was for English cricket? I'm going to be succinct. And look, it's a little bit raw from an emotion perspective. I was thinking about how I'm going to sum up Ian Botham. When he dies, I think I'll have the same emotion as I did when Shane Warne died. Um, and... I think he he is one of those people that transcends cricket. Um, he's a he's a popular culture icon as well as a cricket icon, regardless of his ranking on this list. In in my personal opinion, he mixed with royalty and rock stars, uh, and I think he'll go down as a cricketing rock star. And that for me is more important than the statistics. Um, it's the moments that um, that made the man. Yeah, well, and picking up on that moment, so I mean, I posted uh you know that rabada broad kind of discussion on our facebook page and someone came up with that and said look broad has just had so many more moments in his career even though some of the stats back up rabada and i think with both of them he's a prime example of that and you look at baldy listed off those stats before the 1400s 27 fivers that's 41 moments you know where you've potentially put in a match winning performance I, you know i don't i don't, I'm sure that they didn't all lead to match-winning, um, you know, results. But look, I, I, I think that that's such a huge part of, you know, even someone like me who didn't really see a lot of Botham's career. I think about him as a match winner. That's always how I've ever heard him described. Mm. And just to put into context, just how good he was on a global perspective. Um, prior to, I think he had a back injury in the in the late '80s. Just, oh, sorry, early '80s. Just before he went on that tear, '81, '82, hurt his back. Up until that point, he had 200 wickets at 21 Jeez. before he hurt his back. So he was like all-time great bowler. And then his late, in his last 180 wickets cost him 35, something yeah. like that. So if, if he'd have retired, out. then he'd have been higher than Rabada on this list. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. he would have. Well, he, he was would higher have, than Rabada on this list. He'd have been even higher. He'd been even higher, <laughs> even higher, even higher, even higher. Um, One so, of the great cricket games of all time as well, Ian Botham Cricket. Just uh, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, he was, a, he was a personality before we had... Cantona and Beckham and all the other kind of Jeez, English two strange names to pick and uh, and all the Cantona very useful opening <laughs> uh, but yeah I mean he was he was a cricket personality before we had massive sporting personalities in England I mean we had George Best he was a bit of a, a one-off but uh, and he is also not English that's true and um, I know I know we're about to run out of time but I wanted to pick up on the fact that when you look at both them as well which was so weird about his bowling so many times he looks so pedestrian. Yeah, look, a point that Raj made and uh, on the on, on the way up, that's the the timer going off. Um, Raj, I know, I know you mentioned that, didn't you? And I, I can't remember your exact comment, but yeah. I'll say his I said I'm going to ask you a cheeky question. His performances towards the end of his career tailed off quite a bit. Did he retire? What did he play on too long? Um, 
Look, I, I guess I'd say no, he didn't. And and the reason I'd say no, he didn't is he still had an impact on that 92 World Cup. He mm. um, went up the order as a pinch hitter and scored, um, you know, a, a 50 in that pinch hitter mould before the pinch hitter had really been invented um, and still had an impact even in, in that um, in that tour. On the bowling front, to Baldy's point, he was rapid as a young man. Um, and then the back injury came on. And this is where I make that worn comparison again. A lot of time he got you out, not the ball that he bowled at you. And that that was the biggest thing. He he probably kidded his way um, to, to his last 50 test wickets um, just by the fact that it was Ian Botham bowling at you with, um, you know, a, a 75 mile an hour half tracker, but plenty of verbals as well. Yeah, looked like yeah. That's the point I was going to say that it looked like he made something happen. Always, always made something happen. Let's move on to number thirty-eight on the list. A different era, but another Englishman. Uh, Baldy, who are we going to go to next? We're going. We're going right back to the pre-war era here, and we're going to talk about Jack Hobbs. Played sixty-one tests for England over twenty-two years in Test cricket either side of the First World War. He scored 5,410 runs in Test cricket at an average of 56.94 on uncovered wickets. I want to put that out there, on uncovered wickets. 15 Test 100s, 28 Test 50s. And he scored 61,760 first-class runs in 1,325 innings at an average of 51, and a higher score of 316 not out. And depending on who you talk to, he either had 197 or 199. Uh, Wisdom and Crick Info are having a dispute over the number of test hundreds he had. <laughs> Regardless, he's got about 190 test hundreds. First-class hundreds. Oh, sorry, first-class hundreds. Thank you, Adam. And 273 first-class 50s. And formed one half of probably the best combination opening the batting we've ever seen with Sutcliffe and they averaged 87 together as an opening partnership uh, so an incredible incredible performance averaged 25 with the ball in first class cricket got 108 wickets um, at 25 and, and just the one wicket in in tests but you know he averaged multiple series averaging over 60 against Australia in Australia uh, averaged 81 I think against Australia in England in 1926 an absolute prolific batsman at test level um, and an even more prolific batsman at home in England in first class cricket. Before we get to Hobbs you know as his own career just for, for a table setting question I guess we've just had kind of two famous all-rounders and, and um, you know, contributors in two parts of the game. What what do you guys make of, you know, how valuable an all-rounder is compared to a specialist? You know, would you rather have someone who averages 35 to 40 with the bat and two wickets every single game or, you know, is 55 with the bat? Like what, where, how do you, I mean, Baldy, I guess, first, how did you actually use that in your algorithm and and come up with uh, you know the actual rankings but then I'm yeah I'm keen to hear from the others on on what you actually value in terms of building a team and you know match winning performances and all that kind of stuff yeah, I guess it's when you're looking at how you build an 11 is going to be the key thing. You, you, you're you going to have room for individual brilliance and, and batsmen who are going to, you know, score massive, massive scores. But I think it probably comes back to that ability to influence a moment that, that's the, the most important thing for me, seize initiative in a game. And that's why, you know, when you're looking at a wicketkeeper, for example, there's going to be an argument. Do you pick the guy that might take the leg side stumping that no one else will take? 
Or do you say, well, I have the guy that might miss the leg side stomping, but it's going to average 25 more with the bat. So it, it, it is going to come down to the, that emotive way that you might select your perfect, um, you know, your perfect cricketer. You know, do you have the, you know, the pace of Shane Bond and the guile of Ravi Ashwin? Or, you know, what, what do you build it as your, as your perfect cricketer if you could pick, uh, pick different limbs, I suppose? Mm. It's an interesting one, isn't it? I, I would take... I would take a guy like Hobbs who averaged 56 with the bat because if you have enough of them, you only need four bowlers. And if you have enough bowlers that can do that, you only need four of them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I would be tempted rather than a, and I'm using the word mediocre advisedly here, rather than a guy who averaged sort of 35 with the bat and took a couple of wickets with the ball, I would, I would have, I would have Hobbs. However, however, (laughs) if I could have, Miller or Botham or someone who over the history of test cricket is at an elite level and averages 35 with the bat and 20 with the ball. Absolutely. I want him in my side. Absolutely. That would be the first pick. Well, why, why is Hobbs, ahead? why, why is Hobbs ahead then? And, and why is I suppose, why is he ahead of Hammond and, and some of these other people that we've talked about recent, more recently, because, you know, Hammond's got him covered stats wise. I think he averages more. It's got, more test runs and all those kind of things. Yep. He so does. even even on the specialist side, and yep. then you look at the you know the all rounders that we've just talked about, mm-hmm. two elite cricketers in, in that sense. Yep. W- what is it about Hobbs that made him special enough to put up here? Ah, so the thing that makes Hobbs special, as opposed to the other guys that we've just talked about, is not only does he average around about the same fifty six, fifty seven with the bat. Um, he did it opening the batting, and he did it in a tougher era ostensibly to to do that um, his AARP is plus 10.91 so that's top 18 all time I look at for an opening batter the ability to go on and make hundreds and make big scores have a look at the number of times he went past 50 in his first class career out of 61 tests he went past 50 43 times so he did it 60% of the time effectively in test cricket um, in terms of test matches played that rate of going past 50 is fourth all time amongst all players. So he he went past 50 as an opening bat a lot in conditions that were really, really tough to bat in. And all of the research that I've done on Hobbs said that he was the best batter in the world, potentially even better than Bradman, when it was really difficult conditions for batting. And so from a degree of difficulty perspective, that's why I've got Hobbs above some of those guys who maybe averaged slightly more in test cricket or had similar averages. Bordy, I just want to pick you up on one point. You you did mention big hundreds in there. He wasn't well known for that. No. Again, the Keith Miller theory. You kind of when the going, you know, was was easy. He decided, you know, he wasn't going to kick on and score those big daddy hundreds. Did did, did that mark him down in any way? Oh, a little bit. Yeah, I think so. Um, but interestingly, yeah, a, a quarter of his centuries I was reading today actually were scores of between a hundred and a hundred and ten. So he tended to get to a hundred and go, I've done my job now. And I'm I'm going to get out, and it might be that he had some pretty decent batters coming in after him. But yeah, he was. I had a race to watch. It could could have been that bottle of wine. Yeah, could have been could have been any of those things. Uh, But yeah, tended to get a hundred and then and then not go on with it uh, either from boredom or some other thing. Uh, Just finally, before we finish, uh, has a gate or gates named after him at the Oval. So famously, Grace Gates at Lords and the Hobbs Gates at uh, the Oval, kind of bookending London's cricket grounds with those two, um, those two famous gates excellent let's move on to 
a West Indian. I'm not sure whether he's got any gates um, named after him. We can uh, uh, certainly look that up. But uh, who have we got at number 37, Baldy? At number 37, a really special cricketer in the history of, of West Indies cricket. Uh, one of their first great players, uh, George Headley, played on just the 22 tests for the West Indies, made 2,190 runs. So, so creeps into the qualification uh, runs-wise, but dominates it from a batting perspective uh, in terms of averages. Averaged 60.83 in those 22 tests, and that puts him third all-time amongst qualifying players. Highest score in test cricket of 270 not out. One of his 10 test hundreds in just 22 tests. Five test 50s, uh, so that's a hundreds to 50s ratio uh, in my maths of two to one. Um, and a, a hundreds rate, so he's a- averaged, oh sorry, he, he scored 2,500s per 100 innings that he played, uh, which is also second of all time, and his average above replacement player plus 12, which was 16th all time. So uh, on averages, one of the probably top three or four test batters ever to play the game. So we have talked about a a few good batters lately, and and Stu talked about them when we were talking about Hobbs there. What metrics specifically, or metrics specifically for Headley, put him ahead of those people? Because he didn't play as much cricket, he scored half as much runs. What puts him ahead? It's a real challenging one because a small sample size, even though he had a long test career, it was interrupted by war. The West Indies didn't play very many tests prior to uh, World War Two, I think he only played maybe five series prior to the war, and he averaged 71, 46, 55, 97, and 66 in those five series. So, you know, um, a, a really prolific cricketer. And if you put a lot of stock, and this is, I think, a personal preference thing at this point. And when we come down to the top 30 or 40 cricketers of all time, personal preference on longevity and counting stats versus averages is going to sway the balance heavily one side or the other i tried to balance it here because there's a very small sample size with george headley so it's hard to say that he would have had the same kind of career as jacques callis for example had he played the same number of tests but on a per test basis he is one of the top three or four batters of all time and the stats bear that out how quickly how many runs he scored per hundred tests how many hundreds he scored per hundred tests all of those things um bear that out um and it seems like he, you know, I I don't I'm not a historian of West Indies cricket, but it seems like he was maybe their first really special cricketer, you know, as as a nation. And you know, I, I think you touched on it a little bit in the um, previous episodes where we talked about weeks and and um, and Warrell and, and Walcott and things around how yeah Headley was kind of the the first one to go and uh, you know. M- show that West Indies could be elite cricketers. Absolutely, he, he was. And not only did he do that, he did that and then went also and played in England. And that also set the scene for future West Indian great cricketers to go on and, and do the same. I mean, he didn't really play Test cricket from 1948 to 54. He played, I think, in the Lancashire oh, League. Lancashire or the, League cricket, yeah. Yeah, uh, for, a, for a long time. Um, and obviously his, his grandson played Test cricket for England as well. So he was a real um, trailblazer in terms of his his career path that he set not only for West Indian cricketers to be great within the West Indies, but also to go and ply their trade overseas as well. And if you just have a look at some of those those series that he had against England um, in the 20s and 30s uh, over that period, he scored, I think, 700 runs in four tests in 1929-30. In, I think that was, yeah, it was in four tests. He got 400s in four tests, you know. So at that time, he was a prolific, prolific batter and was being compared very favourably at that time 
to Sir Donald Bradman, and he had similar in that twenty nine thirty kind of era. He had very very similar series averages and and averages over the calendar years. Yeah, I, I, look, I guess it's um, I'll say it's slightly flippantly. You know, he he's another entrant onto the the broad Rabada scale, isn't he? In terms of longevity versus um, statistics. Um, I think his first class record, nearly 10,000 runs at 70, 3300. 70, wow. 69.8 is first class average. Yeah, Um, I rounded up just for um, effect. But um, look, I think that that for me probably just goes, okay, um, he was that special for us to include someone on the list with with 22 games. And Baldy actually, he was the first in a line of three. Um, So his son, Ron Headley, actually played for West Indies. And then Dean Headley, Ron's uh, son, played a famous test match actually in Melbourne where he took six for um, and uh, and beat the Aussies in in an Ashes test. Always like to bring it back to an Ashes victory. Did anyone manage to get an eye test on him? There is a little bit on YouTube. There's, there's a little bit, not much. Not I had much. to do a lot of reading. Um, interesting, he, he struggled against leg spin early in his career. Clary Grimmett had his measure. And he was um, a leg spinner himself, wasn't he, I think? I think he bowled a little bit of, little bit of leg breaks. But, yeah, they, they, the Australians bowled kind of leg stump to him. So what he did was he opened up his stance and stood almost front on and made the Australians... Oh, Craig McMillan. Well, Craig McMillan. And, <laughs> and it reminded me instantly of Shiv Chanderpaul, mm. who used to do something very similar. So he was, you know, a pioneer of unusual technique. 60, 65 years before anybody what, else did it. What I found interesting, though, was that he was actually quite energetic at the crease. Like, mm. he was moving around quite a bit. He probably fits more into a mould much later in eras of cricket than, um, you know, the early 20th century. Mm. Stat for you. You mentioned that pre-war run of fantastic averages. In that period, he scored 25% of the West Indies runs in Holy that period. Holy shoot. Which I'm sure you'll tell me is... Seventeenth all time. It's it's on high a, on it's, a Tuesday. It's high to very high. Look, he, an incredible cricket. hundred in each innings at Lords. He's on the Lords um, on a board for a hundred in each innings. I don't think there are very many actually that have a hundred in each innings at Lords. Very few. Um, but yeah, hundred on debut as well. Just scored hundreds for fun. This guy. Brilliant. I can hear the, the timer going off in the background. We are well into the thirties now. At number. 36. We've got another entrant on the broad Rabada scale in terms of uh, test matches played here. So, yeah, who are we going to talk about number 36? Yeah, real interesting, real interesting character, this guy. Um, again, part of a part of a, a, a almost cricket dynasty in terms of cricket families. Uh, Graham Pollock from South Africa, just the 23 tests, of course, uh, political intervention prevented him from playing more for his country. But in those 23 tests, scored 2,256 runs at an average of 60.97. So applying my Adam Voges law, that leaves him second of all time uh, with a higher score of 274. And that probably was one of the great test innings, that 274. One of his seven test hundreds 11 test 50s um his you know his rate of going past 150 uh, 100 or 50 are both top top seven all time his average above replacement player is plus 17.8 that's third all time so even when you take into consideration the the betting that was around him in that era he was still incredibly dominant um took wickets at first class level scored hundreds for fun at first class level so he scored 64 
first-class hundreds at an average of 54.6. And some of those series against Australia and against England, pretty decent attacks in those eras, dominated Australia in 66 and 69.70 with averages over 73, dominated England in 64.5 with an average of 57 and multiple hundreds uh, in that series against Australia as well. And that England's, uh, that Australia series in 69.70 made 274 in one of the best innings ever played. And I was listening back to some commentary um, and someone, I think it might have been Ian Chappell, said, look, we're in big trouble here because I think he faced the first four balls after lunch, hit a couple of boundaries and then stood on his bat at the other end and Chappell said, we're in big trouble here because uh, Barry Richards has got 100 and Graham Pollock's just come out to show that he's better than Barry Richards. So, <laughs> And he ended up with 274 and put Australia to the sword. Um, I spent a delightful half an hour actually later uh, after work this afternoon going back to watch the 94-5 Bradman testimonial game. I think it was Bradman versus the rest of the world. Uh, that famous uh, Goss, Zoe Goss to Brian Lara game. Um, he made 89 in that game as a 50-year-old. Um, top scored 89 off 71 and just smashed everything. Just pure timing. Heavy bat, pure timing. Unbelievable. It's a, it's a great 40 minutes of YouTube uh, from Rob Belinda too. So go back and have a look at that on YouTube. It's, it's delightful. Just picking up on that point, he didn't, from the footage I've seen, he didn't look like the kind of player that ran many twos or threes. But, no. But that was because of the sound of the ball that was coming off the, the bat. It was very satisfying to watch. It feels like it's one of the biggest unanswerable questions, sort of how good that South African side could have been. I know when we talked to Barry Richards, we you know, touched on that a little bit, but yeah, it just feels like they had such a, you know, obviously them not playing. I don't think any of that's sort of in question, but the fact that they, they were, they were building to be, you know, so many elite cricketers that went on and did things all around first class cricket in, in many different countries. And yeah, just could have been such an amazing cricket side. Did we take into account some of those so-called rebel games, Baldy? I know we played, I think probably 16 of those against the English um, Australian and I think West Indies rebel sides in the yeah the ACs. Yeah, I think I, I had a look at those. I mean, officially they didn't count in the stats, and I haven't got them, and they won't be on the website for round one. But I might put a, a little a couple of addendums in for round two for those players who played in rebel tours that were and World Series cricket and, as and well. World Series cricket as well. I mean, that's Greg Chappell was the one that I mentioned a yeah. couple of weeks ago. But Barry Richards is the other one, I think. I, I, exactly the same. So you know, I think we have to go back and have a look at some of those games and try and put them into context. As you said prior to going on air. Some of the teams in those Rebel Tours had one or two really high-quality players and then it dropped off and some of them were kind of good first-class sides but not quite test sides. Regardless, he dominated all of those uh, those games and, and just showed us what we were missing without having South Africa as part of the cricket sporting and generally sporting community over, the, over that period of time. And I would have loved to have seen this guy play 50 or 60 test matches for South Africa alongside Richards and Rice and Proctor. It would have been one of the great matchups to watch that West Indian side in oh, the yeah. 70s against this side coming up in the world. It would have been one of the great contests, I think, of all time. And it's a shame that we, we'll never have got to see it other than perhaps in, in the minds of, of those with great imaginations or the statistics and AI computers that will <laughs> exist in, in the future that will tell us how those games will have been played out. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want to be at their house on Christmas Day for Christmas Day backyard. Peter Pollock, Graham Pollock, <laughs> Sean Pollock, um, Sean Pollock's cousin, um, who also played first-class cricket as well. Um, yeah, so, yeah, you wouldn't have got much of a bat after your turkey, I don't think. <laughs> no, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. It would have been a hell of a hell of a cricket game on the beach, I think. That would be a very, very competitive affair.
It's interesting looking at, you know, talking about Pollock and, you know, a couple of the other guys we've just mentioned and amazing how many players that now we're obviously going to see going further forward in this Hall of Fame as well that they're talked about as the best batter in the world. Like, then you know, and it's going to be the same with the bowlers when we get around to it. I mean, Bradman, Brad, there's a Bradman quote there saying that, yeah, he thought if the, if the South Africans had had, if, had full careers, we might be talking about Pollock as the best left-hander batter of all time and Barry Richards is the best right-hander batter of all time. And, yeah, you know, for, for someone like Bradman to say those kind of things, it, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And yeah, I, I imagine as we get going, there are going to be other p- cricketing people all around the world that are going to say, you know, this person's the best batter of all time. And, yeah, I guess it's just, you know, staggering to see how deep that list goes, I guess, when we're only at 36. Yeah, we're right into the we're right into the elite guys now. And, and I mean, truly elite players. Um, Bradman said that he thought of left-handers, it was Sobers and this guy were the two best left-handers that he'd ever seen at that point. And that's, that's really uh, quite a high compliment to put him in the same category as Graham Pollock. Awesome. Well, that does wrap up another episode of the Cricketing Hall of Fame. We've gone from 40 to 36, talking about Keith Miller, um, Baron Botham, Sir Jack Hobbs, Sir George Headley, and Graham Pollock. We will be back in your feed with plenty more news, views, and cricketing interviews over the course of the next uh, few weeks, including more Hall of Fame uh, this week in cricket, where we are going to wrap up about the halfway stage in the IPL amongst other things as well. So for tonight, though, good night. God bless from all here in Auckland. We'll see you soon. Cheerio.